You're listening to Jewish Matters with Rabbi Jonathan Feldman. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Jewish Matters podcast. We're broadcasting from Tel Aviv. And tonight, in our Extraordinary Jewish Personalities, we're going to be speaking about Golda Meir, the Iron Woman. And her life really personified the history of Israel. She was an Ola, a pioneering Zionist, who went on to lead the country and become one of the first woman prime ministers in the world. Uh, Indira Gandhi was a few years before her. She moved to Israel in 1922, helping to build the country, and she stepped into her political positions as the head of the Jewish agency, then eventually as prime minister. And we know her for her simplicity, for her straightforward speaking, never skirting the issues, never shying away, and for her dedication to the Jewish people and to building Israel. Uh, Golda was born in Russia, and this is significant because at an early age, she experienced indirectly the pogroms. She saw buildings being boarded up uh, in fear of uh, the pogroms sweeping through the town. And uh, perhaps we can even relate to that a little bit now, what's going on in the United States. And she also has a memory of horses flying by, going, jumping over her. And they weren't Cossacks, but it certainly scared her enough to have embedded within her this memory of Jewish vulnerability. Her family then left Russia and moved to Milwaukee. They were sent to the Midwest and where she had a Midwestern Jewish upbringing. And she quickly showed herself to be a very gifted student. Noteworthy is that she started a book drive. They were extremely poor in Russia and then in America and even Golda in her beginning years in Israel and squeaked out a living. And at a certain point, the school did not have enough textbooks. So she started a drive to raise money to buy textbooks for needy students, probably including herself. And uh, eventually uh, she wound up having to drop out of school at 16. Her mother was very authoritarian. Her sister had moved away to Denver and Golda followed her stayed in school for a while, but then uh, needed to work and make money to support herself and her sister. So she, um, but throughout her time, whether it was in Russia, Milwaukee, and then in Denver, she was around Zionist activism, and she started to get involved in the debates. And it's hard for us to really recreate this time because the beginning of Jewish settlements were happening. All of the isms from socialism to communism to assimilationism were swirling around in the Jewish world and people would sit for hours just debating the issues. And um, this is the environment she was in. She became very idealistic and at the age of 22 decided to make Aliyah and move to Israel. And uh, this was very exceptional, even though there were a lot of people talking about Zionism. We know the phenomenon of armchair Zionism and she acted upon it. Uh, The voyage was particularly challenging. Uh, The boat that they took from Virginia and then moved on to New York, then to Andorres, then to Italy, wound up taking six weeks journey, the crew going on strike, the food being uh, spoiled and sabotaged, the boat being sabotaged. 
and of the kvutsa, the group that went with her, who were making Aliyah, many of them wound up going back to the States. But she persevered, and as we will see, perseverance was certainly one of her strong qualities. And when she first arrived, she lived in great poverty in Tel Aviv, which was just starting to be built. Then she moved to kibbutz, and that was really her dream. And at first, the kibbutz did not want to accept her. They thought she was a spoiled American. She'd never make it. Life on kibbutz was extremely rough. Malaria swamps, heat, cold, no running water, no electricity, um, outhouses, um, danger from the Arab neighbors. But she quickly proved herself. And uh, already when she was in Tel Aviv, her husband came, her husband came and joined her. She had fallen in love with Morris Meyerson. And her domestic life was actually sad because even though they had a great love for each other, he was very different than her. He was introspective. He was an artist, a creative type. She was sociable, political, involved, engaged, and always wanted to be on the move. And so kibbutz life did not suit him, and she was very broken when they had to leave the kibbutz. Eventually, they would wind up separating, and they never actually got divorced. She always claimed that he was the love of her life. It's just that they were so different that they could not really build their lives together for the extent of their lives. And eventually, her sister made Aliyah, her parents made Aliyah, and uh, she did have other family in Israel. Now, when they moved back to Tel Aviv, she quickly became involved in the Histadrut. The Histadrut was the uh, labor union, but it was really more than a labor union. It was really uh, one of the uh, powers behind building the country. They were involved in, building, in buildings, in roads, in workers, in all aspects of building the country. And she would really be in her, her life. Uh, originally the Mapai Party, which eventually became the Labor Party, and the political wing and the uh, social action wing were connected. Now, uh, as she moved up the ranks, uh, she moved, uh, at times she was in Jerusalem. And her, uh, her role, she had two roles which became her kind of specialty. First of all, uh, she, was put, she was kind of directed into being an advocate for women's movements, to be involved in the pioneering woman. And while it was very important for her, for women to be engaged and to be an advocate for women, it was very interesting because she wasn't really a, what we, we call today a woman's liver. She wasn't bothered that women were spending more time working in the kitchen and in the children's houses on the kibbutz than the men. And she herself was always very comfortable in the, in the kitchen. And one of her hallmarks was, of course, the socialist background led to a great informality. And uh, we'll see more about that later. Even when she was ambassador to Russia, she set up the embassy almost like a kibbutz. Uh, the chauffeur and the maid would sit and eat with the ambassador and everyone else. She would do the dishes along with everyone else. And everyone got paid an equal salary. So she advocated for women, but she did not, one of the reasons she didn't uh, also uh, 
primarily become the woman's advocate in the party was because she didn't want to pigeonhole herself. Her ambitions were much greater and she realized she would be stereotyped as someone who was involved in that. So, um, so she moved on and up and now we have to understand uh, her socialism. And it, once again, it's difficult for us to put ourselves back into the 1920s, the 1930s. Remember that in Russia, they were just coming out of a serfdom, really, and uh, the pale of the settlement, and a terrible uh, history of persecution of Jews going back a thousand years, 1500 years in Europe. And so the thought of changing the world uh, the re revolutionary attempt in Russia in 1906, uh, even in America, the urban problems and empowering the workers, building unions and having a vision of a world that would be shared by everyone and where the prosperity would be shared by everyone. And so she, while she was a socialist and she even identified and was very active in world socialist movements as well, at the same time, she was a realist. And we'll see that um, uh, even though she couldn't live on kibbutz, she found an urban kibbutz in Tel Aviv to live at. And um, a friend said of her about her socialism said this, I don't believe that Golda misses anyone. She addresses herself to all of humanity. To miss someone means speaking only to one person at a single moment. And in a sense, what they were saying is that Golda valued uh, the cause even above friendship, and some felt even above family. Um, and so after the founding of the state, when Israel would find itself marginalized, whether it was in socialist conventions, uh, international socialist conventions, the United Nations, she felt bitter disappointment because she saw herself as a world movement and as part of that. And yet at the same time, she felt marginalized as being part of Israel. And while her socialism had a universal vision, she certainly was primarily an ardent Zionist. And that will play itself in an important way as well. Um, because for her, the Zionism was the goal. Whereas for other socialists, the socialism was the goal. For instance, when you had to build, you had thousands of new immigrants pouring in in the 1930s and buildings just had to get built and roads had to be built and the pace was not quick enough. So do you say we are all fighting building for the cause of building up the state of Israel? And therefore we're going to ask workers to work longer hours and maybe not get a pay raise because the Jewish government was broke? Or do you say no? The socialist ideal is that workers have to have their rights and workers have to be protected and can't be exploited and therefore we can't go beyond the limitations. So for Golda it was the former, it was the Zionism was the ultimate goal. But, and she felt it uh, on the international forum. She's, this is what she said and this is from Yehuda Avner's book The Prime Ministers. He was speechwriter to her and to many of the other prime ministers and I highly recommend reading the book. It's an incredible uh, overview of modern Israeli history 
and it's told in a very personal way. You really see the inside story, and it's not dry history. So this is what she said. She said, I look around me at the UN, and I think to myself, we have no family here. Israel is entirely alone here, less than popular and certainly misunderstood. All we have to fall back on is our Zionist faith. And why should that be? Why, she would lament. And uh, never really answering the question, which is, of course, the age-old question of anti-Semitism. So she moved up in the Histadrut. Uh, she spent much time abroad because her other niche, besides being uh, an advocate for women, was that since she had grown up in the United States, she was a natural selection to reach out to the American Jewish and Zionist community. And she did play that role uh, between the mid-1920s and the early 30s. She traveled often, even leaving her three-year-old daughter uh, for many, many months. And um, the two stints, though, that she did in, in 1932 and 1936, in the United States, she did bring her kids. And when she came back, she immediately threw herself back into the leadership. So uh, as the 1930s went on, the tensions with the British mandate government became more and more so. Uh, the British issued, uh, did a, there was a conflict between the Jews and the Arabs. The Arabs would riot. There were massacres of Jews in 1929 and 1936. And the British convened the Peel Commission to decide what to do. And one of the main recommendation was to have a partition plan put in place, which would divide the land between the Arabs and the Jews. Now remember, the British had taken over a mandate to create a Jewish homeland based on the Balfour Declaration and the San Remo Conference of 1922. The League of Nations had set aside Transjordan, which was Palestine and then Transjordan across the river, as a Jewish homeland. Four-fifths of it was set aside as the Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan, and one-fifth was left as Palestine. Of that one-fifth, it would be carved up into a Jewish and a Arab state. And Golda went against the majority of the labor Zionist leadership, and she was against the partition. She felt very passionately that the Arabs have many countries, the Jews only will have one, and while Arabs would be welcome as equal citizens in the Jewish state, but Israel was to be a Jewish state. That was her outlook. Now, by 1946, her outlook would change, and she would become much more pragmatic, and uh, any state would be a good state for her. So we will see her outlooks evolve. Now, the, uh, the Mapai, the labor leadership, uh, had a self-defense wing, which was the Haganah, which protected the Jews in the community. And um, when World War II, even before World War II, uh, the Haganah started to put pressure on the British to allow immigrants in. Anti-Semitism is rising in Europe. Jews have nowhere to go. The British 
just at the eve of World War II, issued the White Paper, which was closing the borders, a very tight uh, quota of Jews entering, I believe it was 15,000 a year, and when hundreds of thousands were scrambling to get out of Europe. And so uh, the Haganah, uh, as well as primarily the Irgun, which was the more right-wing activist uh, movement for liberation, but the Haganah at times as well would take actions against the British. And one of those actions, uh, Ben-Gurion, who was the leader of the Jewish community called the Yishuv at that time, was in Paris, and because uh, of the actions against the British, he could not come back. And so Golda became the head of the Jewish agency and took over the Jewish community's relations uh, with Jews all over the world and some aspects of running the Jewish community as well. So uh, during that time, during the war and after the war, uh, as the refugees were trying to get in. Uh, and there was a famous statement, which when we talked about Menachem Begin, I mentioned it as well. They said, we will fight the white paper, closing off Jewish immigration as if there was no World War II. And we will fight for World War II as if there was no white paper. So when there was a danger of the German armies rolling across North Africa, the Haganah formed the Palmach, which was their Sikh clandestine strike force uh, and which would be activated if the Germans would try to invade. Uh, there were many different initiatives for Jews to fight with the British. There was a Jewish legion form that drew many from the Jewish community in Palestine. And uh, as Golda always pointed out, uh, the Arabs allied themselves, the Mufti of Jerusalem went to Berlin, allied themselves with the Nazis. And despite that, the British favor towards the Jewish community still was not improved. And the political pressures were to favor the Arabs more. So the uh, Haganah was involved in what was in the Mapilim, in secretly trying to get boats to land on the coast, bringing in Im immigrants clandestinely, circumventing the British uh, uh, blockade. And in one famous incident, one of the boats was taken, threatened to be sent back to Germany, and the Jewish leadership went on a hunger strike. Golda was with them. It was in Jerusalem, in the Jewish agency headquarters. Very famous incident. They would only take two glasses of unsweetened tea a day. And it was Passover time. The rabbis were uh, distressed that... Passover would not be observed. So they came up with a very ingenious strategy where they actually uh, observed a Passover Seder eating the minimum requirement of matzah, which is about a kazayat, about that big. And after two or three days of fasting and only drinking, obviously that's not going to fill you up. And so they had a symbolic Seder where they ate the minimum amount. Uh, people joined them at night singing all the songs, hundreds of people, uh, rabbis came and prayed the next morning and they had services and this was all an incredible show of civil disobedience and the British relented and let the boat in. Uh, but the problems continued and what, uh, Golda was passionate and adamant 
that her outlook was that Zionism was about saving Jews. And so she tried to push to advocate for the Jewish leadership in Palestine to be involved in trying to save refugees uh, and save Jews from going to the gas chambers. Uh, there were other Zionist voices that said, we cannot deviate from the mission of building Israel. That is the future of the Jewish people. And if we don't have Israel, we're all going to be vulnerable. But she did not see it that way. If a Jewish life was in danger, you addressed it immediately. And that was the majority view. But, um, and they did try to lobby the British and the Americans to bomb the tracks to Auschwitz, but to no avail. Golda started a refugee fund, tried to raise money, but the response uh, with, even within her own party was not that great and uh, they weren't able to, uh, to do any large initiatives, even though she had tried. So, as World War II uh, in, heated up and Jews were being slaughtered and exterminated, uh, the pressure to bring Jews in was even greater, but the British blockade did not relent. And by the time they got to after, right after the war, the British had so many boats they were intercepting, they started sending them, uh, not some back to Europe, where the Jews would wind up back in DP camps, like the famous Exodus book of the Leon Uris book and uh, the Exodus boat of Leon Uris's novel, Exodus and the movie Exodus, um, but others were sent to Cyprus. And the British sent up camps in Cyprus. The conditions were terrible, uh, terrible 100 degree heat, behind barbed wire, uh, no furniture, living in tents, barely enough water to drink and no water to wash themselves. And these were the survivors of the Holocaust. And this is what the British was doing with them. And so you had a dramatic problem that um, you had a dramatic problem that uh, you were children in these camps. And so the decision was made to try and get the poli British policy was first boat in would be first boat out. There was a quota that they would let in 7,000 people a year. Remember, they were up to 25 in the camp, 25,000. And so they needed someone to go convince some of the refugees to allow the children and families to go to Palestine first. And Golda was the one who took on that mission. And this is very emblematic of her. She always said, when something is right, you do it, you try to do it no matter what. It doesn't, you never say, I'm going to fail. You do it and you try. And she's, sure enough, she was successful in convincing people had already languished in these camps to spend more time in there to allow the children to go. So uh, Golda was also involved because she was involved in the, uh, in the Haganah. There were other initiatives she was involved with. Her apartment would be used to radio the boats. If they'd been caught, the British would have arrested them all. Uh, she would also ha often have to travel back and forth between Jerusalem and Tel Aviv because her offices were in Jerusalem, the Jewish agency. The seat of the government was mostly in Tel Aviv at that time, and her car was shot at numerous times. Once the British had stopped the car, and the British would confiscate weapons uh, when the uh, guard, the woman guard that was with her, 
was going to be arrested, she told the British, if you take her, you have to take me. And when the local police commissioner found out about it, he said to his soldiers, don't mess with this woman. She's tough stuff. So that was her reputation. The British uh, respected her greatly and in a way different than Ben-Gurion. It was very interesting. But she had this way to ingratiate herself to people but without flattering them. She would speak straight, she would make her demands, yet at the same time create a personal rapport. And that was part of her strength. And um, so as a representative of the Jewish community with the British, she played a key role. Now, uh, the British eventually succumbed to the Jewish pressure. Uh, and finally, in 1947, they throw up their hands. They say, we are leaving and we're turning over Palestine to the UN and they will decide what to do. The UN voted also for a partition plan, as I mentioned before. By now, Golda was in favor of the partition because she felt any Jewish state is better than no Jewish state. And, but they knew that as soon as they declared a state, that the Arabs would attack. And most of Ben-Gurion's advisors told him not to declare independence. Uh, Ben-Gurion nevertheless stuck to his guns. Golda was for declaring independence as well. And she was one of the signatories on the Israeli Declaration of Independence, one of two women who signed it. Now, uh, in November 47, the UN voted to partition plan, and the Jewish community would have some six months until the following May, when the British left, to prepare themselves, except the British wouldn't let them arm themselves. They would turn the other way when the Arabs armed themselves, and the Arabs were already sending in irregular soldiers infiltrating, attacking Jews. So Jews had to not just arm themselves clandestinely in Palestine, they needed desperately to raise money to form an army, to buy weapons abroad that would be shipped the minute that they declared a state. The Jewish agency representative in the United States was, uh, he optimistically thought he could raise five to seven million dollars when 25 to 30 was needed. So Ben-Gurion was going to go to the United States. Golda said, no, you stay here, I will go. And she sat on her mission. And when she arrived, she had nothing in hand because she couldn't get back to Jerusalem to get her belongings. She arrived at the airport and when they said, who are you, you know, she, had an, uh, she was returning from Palestine, they said, well, who are you visiting here? Where's your family? Who'd by then all moved to Palestine. She said, the Jewish people are my family. And fortuitously, the uh, Federation annual convention was a few days later in Chicago. Everyone dissuaded her, Golda, you can't march in there. They're not Zionists, they're American Jews. They have many needs for their own community. She, of course, did not listen to them. She went to Chicago. When she went, they said, don't come on strong. Don't ask them for too much. And once again, she did not listen to them. One of her strengths was speaking extraneously, no notes. She got up there and she said directly to them, she said, uh, she didn't mince her words. People said, don't make it look like the Yishuv is desperate or in danger. She, she laid it before them. She said, this is a moment, historic moment of the Jewish people. 
First time in 2,000 years we're about to form our own country and it's a drastic moment for the Jewish people because we are going to be attacked. And while we know we're going to win, we need the weapons to do so. And she said we need 25 to 30 million dollars. Not in three months, not in a month. We need it immediately so we can send arms immediately for, because the, the independence was going to be declared within a few weeks. The leadership was so moved by her that they immediately pledged the 25 to 30 million dollars took out loans to give the money immediately, which they would then pay off. And so she went on a tour through the rest of the country. She wound up raising $50 million. And Ben-Gurion would later say that, Golda, it was thanks to you that the state of Israel was saved. So uh, her next assignment was to convince King Abdullah of Jordan not to attack and she met with him. Uh, the, uh, the kings of Jordan had a good relationship with the Jews and with the Zionist movement. Uh, they were criticized and pressured by their allied, uh, allies because of it. And this was going to be the beginning of a long-term relationship with the Hashemite kings of Jordan uh, that Golda would have ongoing. But when he said the offer was that Jordan would annex uh, the Palestinian partition areas, he wanted more land, and he wanted the Jews not to declare a state and not to let in any more immigrants. And she said to him, no way. And so um, she, as with Ben-Gurion, pushed independence. Independence was declared. And she immediately flew back to New York to continue fundraising. When in New York, even though she became very ill, she was appointed ambassador of Russia, ambassador, Israel's first ambassador to Russia. Now, we also have to go back and understand the strategic importance of Russia. Russia had voted for the Jewish state and the partition plan, shockingly. And part of it was, as we said before, the early Zionists, were rooted in socialism and the Russians saw a potential ally in the Middle East because of their common socialist ties. And so it was a very important position and even though Golda, of course, wanted to immediately run back to Palestine to be in the new state, she realized she had to accept the position. We talked about how she set up uh, the embassy as a socialist uh, kibbutz, um, and at the same time had to play this diplomatic role of formal gowns, which was so unlike Golda. Her trademark was her simple dress, her simple demeanor, and, uh, and uh, she was very unused to these uh, formalities and the high lifestyle. Uh, and so she was very happy when after a year, uh, she was allowed to go back to the new state of Israel. Now, there's one incident that was particularly impactful for her and for the Jewish community and for the new state. And the staff decided that they were to go to synagogue. Now, the synagogues in Russia, as we know, were tightly regulated. There were 300 people on a Saturday morning, mostly old men. And when they arrived, they did recognize her. So they knew that the staff was going to synagogue. When Rosh Hashanah came, and they went to the synagogue. 
when normally there might be 2,000 people in the synagogue, and once again, just the older Jews, very circumspect. 50,000 Jews congregated around the synagogue in their excitement over the new state and its new representative to be there. And even though since, uh, 19, uh, since the beginning of the 20th century, the communists had attempted to suppress religion, the Jews still had it in their heart. And this was the first stirrings of what would eventually become the Soviet Refusenik movement. And in a population of 500,000 Jews in Mas Moscow, of 500,000 in Moscow, sorry, 50,000 Jews showed up. Years later, she would say this. She would say, the one time I ever really prayed was in a synagogue in Moscow. It was shortly after the establishment of the state, and I was Israel's ambassador there. And she said, if I'd stayed in Russia, I might have become religious. Maybe. Who knows? Now, as a socialist, she was avowedly non-religious, but then you question, was she really? Another striking anecdote was that at a reception, the Soviet foreign minister Molotov, of cocktail fame, uh, his wife came over to her and started to speak to her, engage her, and it was very clear that something was there, and she then started to speak to her in Yiddish. And they formed a special connection, but later she found out that his wife was sent away, uh, possibly because she was reaching out. Five months after she arrived, all of the Yiddish newspapers, the Yiddish theater, all Jewish life was shut down by the Soviets. Once again, afraid of Jews refinding their Jewish identity and connecting it to Israel. After a year, when she returned to Israel, she returned to become the first minister of labor of the new state. And her vision was to found a state founded on social justice. But as we said before, she was a pragmatic socialist, even though she was an idealist. And she welcomed all Jews, not just the productive ones, which was a big debate as well amongst uh, the Jewish leadership, and she desperately tried to help the new arrivals, mostly Sephardic, living in tents, to get out of the tents, to build housing for them, because she had lived in abject poverty and she knew what it was like. In 1956, she became the defense minister. The Sinai campaign broke out that year, and uh, she had to deal with the first of Israel's war after the War of Independence. In the 1960s, she moved on to being foreign minister, and that is the position she kept through the first half of the 1960s. She was diagnosed with lymphoma, but despite that, she continued to serve her country. And in 1966, she retired. When the uh, Six-Day War was looming, she was brought back into the circle of the Prime Minister Levi Eshkol's advisors. And in 1969, after the Six-Day War, when he died, she was appointed prime minister and then elected prime minister shortly after. And she would serve in that position till 1974. And as we mentioned, there were only three or four other women who had been prime ministers in the entire world, the most famous Indira Gandhi, and she made her mark. During her, the beginning of her period as prime minister, the Egyptians launched the war of attrition, uh, bombing the Israeli 
positions along the Suez Canal, which of course were vital since the Egyptians had invaded before. The Jews would strike back. It wasn't an all-out frontal war, but it was what Nasser called a war of attrition. And uh, other notable events of her prime ministership was when she visited the United States, the love and the outpouring, the support was unparalleled, more as perhaps than any other prime minister. Uh, she also uh, lived through or served through the 1972 Olympic Munich massacre of the Jewish Olympic team. And it was a trauma for Israel. Uh, and she ordered afterwards the famous hunting down by the Mossad of the terrorists who performed, who did that terrorist uh, attack and uh, which was immortalized in a few movies uh, that were recently made. So that was her order and directive given to, um, to hunt down the terrorists. Now, her political views were very interesting because she refused to meet with Yasser Arafat, as Menachem Begin would later. Uh, she viewed him no better than the Mufti of Jerusalem, who had gone to ally himself with the Germans during World War II. Uh, she viewed that Arafat had Jewish blood on his hands and there were, uh, there were discussions and secret negotiations over peace agreements with the Arabs. But her position was never to give back the entire West Bank. She believed that in the, from 48 to 67, there was no movement to form a Palestinian state and there was not a politically uh, uh, a real political Palestinian people, even though she recognized that we're Palestinian refugees, but she viewed Jordan as the country with Palestinians. And so there were discussions of Jordan, uh, in a sense, re-annexing part of the West Bank, but they never came to fruition. And by the way, this position of never giving back the whole West Bank was one that was held also at the time by Shimon Peres, Yitzhak Rabin, Abba Iban, and even Henry Kissinger. They viewed that those borders were undefendable. Um, and later they would be called the Holocaust borders, right? Because they would lead to a slaughter of the Jewish people. At the widest place, they are nine kilometers wide. That was untenable for her. And in 1973, the King of Jordan made another secret visit to Israel and met with Golda. And here he warned about the Syrian and Egyptian buildup of troops. And it's a matter of controversy. To what extent did he uh, explicitly warn her that Israel might be invaded, might be attacked? Moshe Dayan certainly downplayed it and she accepted his answer. They moved 100 tanks to the Golan and they said, well, at least we have 100 tanks to defend against 800. And the general perception after the Yom Kippur War was that Israel had struck such a stunning victory in 1967 that they felt almost invincible. And eventually it would be 2,000 tanks against the 100 in the Golan and yet they were able to hold out. But certainly one could not rely upon that. Throughout October, her generals kept reassuring her there would be no war. There were voices within the military that were very concerned and brought it up to her. Uh, 
but one of the, the intelligence specialists who had uh, secret listening devices in Egypt never activated them. So when Moshe Dayan would ask him, is everything okay? He would say yes. They assumed he was saying it with that intel, which he wasn't. The Yom Kippur War was looming. Uh, the holiday was coming up. And six hours before the attack, Golda gave the order to mobilize. When they re realized it was inevitable, it was almost too late. And she also decided not to, uh, to carry out a preemptive strike because she viewed that U.S. aid was too important. And this one could view both ways because we're going to see. The Yom Kippur War, which was probably the most traumatic, not that the casualties were better than the War of Independence or so much lower, but uh, the fear that the Jewish state might have been overrun. Uh, was very traumatic. And after the war, the Ar Granat Commission would convene and ultimately they decided she had acted responsibly and mobilized, but most of the country viewed it as too little and too late. Nevertheless, in her characteristic manner, she confronted her decisions, she didn't hide, and she went up to the Golan to be with her soldiers. And as she was near the front, uh, she visited them and she went into a sukkah where soldiers were praying. And after services, she, they gathered around to talk to her. And one of the soldiers said this to her. They said, Golda. She said, they, he said, my fa I lost my father in, 19, in the War of Independence in 48 and we won. My uncle was killed in 1967, and we won. My brother lost an arm, in, just lost an arm in the Yom Kippur War, and we won. And yes, we're going to win, but Golda, is the sacrifice worth it? How do you answer such a question? And yet she answered it. This is what Golda said, the Iron Woman. She said, and yet, strong but compassionate, she said, I weep for your loss just as I grieve for all our dead. I lie awake at night thinking of them, and I must tell you in all honesty, were our sacrifices just for ourselves alone, then perhaps you would be right. But our sacrifices are for the whole Jewish people. And then, I believe with all my heart that any price is worthwhile. This is what she answered the soldier. And she could answer that because this is how she lived her life. Dedicated to the Jewish people, dedicated to the Zionist cause, serving in the government, serving her people, often uh, with fallout for her personal life, for her family life, and yet dedicated she was. And it's sad that it ended. Uh, she stayed as prime minister and was her party even won another election after the Yom Kippur War, but five months later she eventually resigned. And in a sense it was under the cloud of the catastrophe of the Yom Kippur War, which thank God Israel won, but at a great price and at a great traumatic loss. But we can't let that overshadow who she was and her great stature. She did get to see 
Anwar Sadat come to Jerusalem in 1977 to start the priest process with Egypt, and she died a year later in 1978. She'll be remembered as one of the greats of the founding of the State of Israel. Tune in next week as we continue our Extraordinary Jewish Personalities. Sunday night, Jewish Spirituality, The Soul in the Afterlife, will be doing our fourth installment, which will be um, the fourth installment of Does Judaism Believe in Reincarnation? Next Wednesday night, tune in again, where we will be talking about uh, uh, a hero of the Jewish people also around the Holocaust and the State of Israel, Abba Kovner, uh, the angel of vengeance. So tune in for that next week. Have a good night, everyone.